3: Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is episode 78 with Alexa Clay. Find her on Twitter at Alexa Clay, C-L-A-Y. She's an economic historian, a futurist, and she works on researching the misfit economy. You can find out more about it at misfiteconomy.com. Um, thank you so much for being here. Please subscribe. You can f- subscribe in whatever podcasting app you choose. I like Pocket Casts for iPhone and Android, but whatever you choose, that's fine. Thanks to everybody that emailed this week. I've got emails from all over the world. I really, really, really like it. Thank you so much. You made my day. Um, simply to email me, just subscribe to the mailing list and write back to the email that welcome mail comes out of. Uh, you can find me on iTunes. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Periscope, and Meerkat at the moment so there's a lot of live streaming going on had an okay week hope your week was all right um if you've been listening for a while you know that uh i've got a torn labrum you know old dudes like me have torn things in their bodies i have a torn labrum in my left hip so my doctor said uh go to the gym go challenge that hip go do stuff i don't normally like gyms i just really wasn't into you know tiny little bicep curl mirrors, dudes with iPods, no one's looking at each other, la, la, la. But my girlfriend took me to a um, a circuit training gym. And it actually, it's actually kind of good. I kind of like it. There's no mirrors. And uh, everything's very different each week. So I'm enjoying it. It's very functional too. So I'm really kind of digging that. And I've been riding my balls off this week. My, my Strava told me, that's a little app that cyclists use to document and basically show off to their friends what they did. <laughs> my Strava told me I've ridden 31 times this week. Uh, which is pretty good. And that's it's and, you know, a busy week of work and meetings and stuff like that. I had three or four car trips. Most of them were to my girlfriend's house. So there you go. Less than four kilometers, most of those rides. But yeah, it was really good. And um, it's really nice to be riding and be out on the street. And I, I, I get a real sense of, I don't want to say power, but presence. I feel a lot of presence with the world when I'm out on the street. Like when you're in a your car, you tend to be in this little bubble and cut off from the rest of the world. But when I'm on my bike, I, I feel a lot more a part of everything. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's what it feels like. I've been reconnecting with mates this week, which is really important for my general well-being. Gen- like, the thing is to remember about guys, we don't talk face-to-face. We talk shoulder-to-shoulder. So guys need stuff to do while they talk about the stuff that's happening in their lives. So each and every week, me and my mates, we'd play um, – we play poker, which is pretty fantastic. We um, sit around a table and it's only a little $20 game. There's nothing, but I don't go for the cards. You know, there's a lot of wisdom around that table, which is really, really good. Um, a lot of dad wisdom this week. The boys were all talking about dad stuff, which is awesome. Yeah, it's good. It's nice. It's really nice. And um, my uh, my best mate, my brother from another mother came down and uh, he stayed on my couch this week. So it was super cool to have him around uh, we have a lot of shared history, and it's just really great to to, to connect with people, you know, because I, you know, i will flip to my own devices. I'll stay at home and not talk to anybody, so it's good that I'm kind of factoring in enforced connection with other humans in my life. I'm actually healthier for it, despite my brain telling me yeah, I don't want to sit at home alone. I got surprised with a birthday cake this week at work. By the time you listen to this, it's my birthday. I'm 41. And the other night at work, um, the first assistant director says, oh, just um, you're just going to swing by the control room to say goodnight? There's like one in the morning when we finished shooting. And I go downstairs the and they walk in with this massive chocolate, salted caramel, popcorn cake, vegan cake. I haven't been surprised with a birthday cake in forever, ever. And, oh, it was super, super nice. It was super nice. So we're having a bit of a shindig um, tomorrow. By the time you've heard this, it will have happened. But, you know. It's indicative of where I am in my life, which makes me really happy to say that I'm not having a birthday party at some club or whatever. I'm having a birthday party in a park in the afternoon with blankets and kids and snacks and frisbees. And it's so awesome. So awesome. It makes me really happy. makes me really happy because community, you know, who'd have thought, Who'd have thought that I actually do better when I'm surrounded by people, despite what my brain tells me? And this is interesting, because this is what Alexa Clay and I talk about. My guest, Alexa Clay, is a very, very interesting, very smart woman. She's exploring and explores and studies and talks about the misfit economy. What's the misfit economy? Well, 60% of the world's economy, roughly $10 trillion worth of the world's economy, more than half, isn't exactly legal, all right? Black markets, gray markets, cash-only businesses, entrepreneurs in the emerging world, selling things that might not be particularly legally acquired, but making cash. And she studies in what Western businesses in the developed world, what can they learn from from these workers and from these entrepreneurs and from these hustlers. We get pretty nerdy on this one pretty quickly, all right? Uh, she and I, well, I start referencing a book called The Zero Marginal Cost Society by Jeremy Rifkin. I highly recommend it. Very, very interesting. But Alexa goes on to talk about what she learned from drug dealers, gang leaders, gang members, pimps, pirates. And we also talk about what we're all going to do once robots take all the laboring jobs, which is a reality that we're going to face in our lifetimes. It's going to happen. Um she has some very interesting answers to that question. We recorded this conversation in Amsterdam in November. It was a cold winter's day. We just had a superb conversation at a forum that we'd just done at THINK, the Amsterdam School of Creative Leadership, where I work. Just a few hours before, we'd had a very similar version of this conversation. And she was so kind to uh, you know accept the invitation to basically have the same conversation, but on tape. She's a brilliant thinker. She's gonna probably shock you with some of the things she says and some of her insights. However, I know that you won't mind the challenge. You, might, well, you won't mind the challenge of what, what she says. So come be a part of this. Uh, come and sit with us in a very cozy, very nice Airbnb by a canal in Amsterdam on a cold winter's evening with the wonderful Alexa Clay. Wow, okay, I'm rolling. Um... As we sit here in, uh, in Amsterdam, you know how to use microphones. Um, Speak into them. Yeah. Hi, Alexa. <laughs> I'm well. Thanks for this.
1: Yeah, this is great.
3: I appreciate very much that you're prepared to have almost the same conversation <laughs> we had five hours ago.
1: Is it the same? Similar. Okay. I hope.
3: Well, I would like to share what you talked about today with, with more people, you know, mm. as many as I, as I can, um, because I find what you're doing is, is, is really interesting. You're a economic historian, which is that. My brother's an economist, oh, yeah. but I didn't know you could be an economic historian.
1: Yeah, I, I really started off studying history and economic theory, and the history of economic theory. So Adam Smith and all these really early theorists who were trying to figure out commercial society, basically.
3: Well, okay, we'll get straight into it then. So, what did <laughs> when you learn? What were the biggest shifts in in society as we know it and how were they, that, that were tied to, to the economy as we know it?
1: Historically? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, around this time, I think the biggest thing that really interested me is how this idea of self-interest really came about and became decriminalized to some extent. So this idea that to pursue your own self-interest was morally defensible and there were a lot of economic theorists that were arguing this um, at the time, and that sort of became the backdrop for utility theory and a lot of, you know, Ayn Rand and, you know, this So before
3: before that, was it considered, if you're not doing something for the village or for everyone, you're being a selfish bastard? Yeah, there was much
1: more of a commons discourse, and I Hmm. think the economy sat within, you know, a larger circle of morality, Um, and I think now the economy is the bigger circle and morality is the smaller circle.
3: So there was a time when I'm going to go off and go and host forums in Amsterdam by myself Mm -hmm. was considered a, well, you should really be looking after everyone, Ginsburg.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think you always had degrees of selfishness, but I Mm -hmm. think that was policed by a moral system more. And then suddenly commercial society had this rhetoric to it that in pursuing your own welfare and your own good, that that was Mm -hmm. an end in itself. And that actually led to greater sort of economic equilibrium and
3: I'm also, I guess, in that in that realm of separating um, self from the collective yeah. and that the collective used to be the thing that had priority and now the self is the thing that has priority for good or bad. That's the society that Western society, modern society lives in. Um, the idea that there was a time when the skill and the trade, uh, there was an ownership of the skill and the trade, but then as the Industrial Revolution came along, the... I owned the machines and you worked on the machine. You didn't own the work. You just did the work. And the separation of the ownership of the work happened. Completely, yeah. Yeah, kind of fascinates me too.
1: Yeah, people moved out of this cottage industry and started, yeah, selling themselves to the market as wage labor, which had dramatic shifts. And then something you just said was really interested me, this idea of the separation of the individual from a collective. And... I think that was really dramatic because then you had this heightened awareness of yourself as an individual self, which brought a lot of existential pressure too. You felt sort of, and it's a, you know, the crisis of alienation that a lot of us feel today is part of that legacy. You know, that people feel separate, Mm. um, where they feel like their destiny is in their own hands, where they feel like they have to make individual decisions all the time. Um, I think it's a burden in a lot of ways.
3: Um, This book I'm um, kind of halfway through Jeremy Rifkin's Zero Marginal Cost Society. He talks mm. about that this concept of a separate bedrooms is only a recent thing that we slept in communal rooms and it was like one room and that was totally cool.
1: Yeah, I remember reading Scandinavian fiction when I was younger and all these stories of families um, sleeping under sort of bear skins and, you know, all together. And I think it was a much different kind of picture
3: and, but the idea that we were not only separated um, economically but also physically put in boxes. Mm-hmm. And now go on, you, you sleep in that room, you sleep in that room, the separation of us from each other. Um, I wonder how that's going to work out. I wonder if we're yeah. going to maybe come back the other way.
1: I mean a friend of mine even in Berlin recently told me, oh, you know, touch is really important to me. And the fact that she had to say that, that something so basic and so human, like she had to assert, um, was just, I found that kind of funny, that there are all these human things that we've sort of lost and have to begin to reclaim.
0: Hmm.
3: Well, she does live in Berlin.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what? Do, uh, Germans aren't touchy. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, I some of know. them
3: can be very touchy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Too touchy. In, yeah.
3: in some parts of Berlin that I've walked through, I love that city so much. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's great. <laughs> what do you like living there?
1: Uh, it's a real creative refuge for me um, and I think I've just met so many people I think that don't have, have more of a collectivist mindset at work and are just doing really interesting creative things and it feels like cultures are being shaped there. You know, whenever I go to Paris, I feel like it's expired, like it had its heydays in the 20s and 30s and is living out of nostalgia and Berlin feels like it's a place in Europe where culture is being actively created.
3: You say collectivist. A lot of people can maybe hear that and think collective communism, bad. No. Yeah. So yeah, what's where's the separation there?
1: I think when I say collectivist in Berlin, I'm really thinking of um, just a lot of my friends and the way that they are and how they structure their lives to maximize just different types of things. I think whenever I'm back in the US, I'm always hyper aware, particularly in cities like New York or Uh, san francisco more of just the hyper ambition and the i almost feel like i wanted you know at one point i was thinking we should do this art project where all these americans just come out and push this giant boulder across the u.s because it has such a masochistic culture of work um and one that i sometimes fall into as well you know is something that i was very much raised on is is hard work but i think yeah, it's it's just, it's destroyed so much quality of life and it's really unnecessary. And I think it comes from a strange psychological place.
3: Funny you mentioned that. I was in Australia in November and I took UberX everywhere for, I was there for only two weeks. So it was cheaper to take UberX everywhere than it was to get a rental car. Mm. I met heaps of really interesting people. And what I like about UberX is you sit in the front seat and you have great conversations. And this one guy, he'd emigrated from, uh malaysia and when he was a kid so he was a child when he arrived so he was six or seven his parents took him there and i said you know so how are you liking australia and He said look it's not like it used to be this is a kid that remembers what it was like in malaysia he said, it's not like it used to be there's no culture here and i said what do you mean he goes when people have time off they shop and that's it and it freaked me out to hear it said because I emigrated to Australia when I was four months old so I had a few years on him but (laughs) he had a few years on me I should say but just to hear that and I get it, I see it so much in the States, we've got time off, what are we going to do? Go to the mall, what else do we do? You know, there's no like do we have a meal together, do we go for a walk together, do we go and do something together? It's just not only is society getting separated physically, and as you mentioned earlier, economically, but also once the, like the actual cultural experience of being with each other is less and less. I mean, I grew up in, in Brisbane, Australia, in the early, late 70s, early 80s, it was a cow town, all right, mm. a big country town. Gas stations were only open till noon on Saturday, and then the rest of Saturday and all of Sunday, good luck if you are in out of gas because there was no shops were open. We had late night trading one night of the week on Thursdays and that was it. So yeah, we'd go on picnics and go and sit in the park and do it and things like that. And now the malls are open from nine till nine, seven days a week
1: and it kind of freaks me out. I think it's disgusting, yeah. It's this time poverty problem and I remember some, like being a kid, you know, I have these memories of it just being a time of unsupervised play. And now even children have these schedules that mimic the adult schedules. And I, I think it's really changing intimacy and also, huh. um, no?
3: No, 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 I'm just like changing intimacy. I mean, if you're that's, a consumer
1: all the time and you're yeah. not just having these, yeah, even, you know, people... I won't say like sitting down at family dinner. That's rather cliche, but, you know, people are on their devices. Sitting down
3: at a family dinner without a phone in your hand?
1: Yeah. Even, I mean, it's funny sometimes I notice whenever I go home how much sometimes, you know, family members will all just be on our laptops and we're really not there. You know, everyone can be there, but they're not there. Um, So, yeah, it's scary. How do we change it? I mean, this is what I've been trying to do a bit with my Amish futurist character. So really thinking and being reflexive about the impact that digital technology is having on our subjective emotions and and just well-being, and really pushing startup founders to design things that bring out the better qualities of what it means to be human.
3: Rather than in the zombie
1: like Facebook liking economies. I just feel I, I also use an app called self-control because I'm a writer. So uh, it just blocks these things. But the fact that I can, yeah, even outsource my self-control to an app is kind of funny.
3: Uh, you know? that, is, that is interesting. You're writing. You're still writing the book, The Misfit Economy, or is it done? We're
1: done now. So, uh-huh. yeah, it comes out in June.
3: That's a long time to wait.
1: Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's good. I have a little break
3: so I will have explained in the intro who you are and how you are and 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 where you are but um the misfit economy as I understand it is what as you said 60 to 70% of some country's economy isn't exactly legal and it's how it's it's having a look at the economies of those illegal activities and what we can learn from how those things get done and how can we bring some of that into into the into the world of, of you know paying taxes and abiding by
1: mainstream laws. society. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's I think it's two things in a way. It's one looking at informal economies, black market economies, gray market economies, all these economies that happen on the fringes and understanding what we can learn from innovators there. Uh, I think a lot of literature we tend to read, like Steve Jobs' autobiography, and all these different types of things um, about these dead white men innovators and there's this whole like mass of creativity happening in different you know different types of economies
3: dead white men innovators no no that's perfect That's just what they are
1: but the trippy <laughs> thing about that to me is i think we're haunted by these people i think you know i think ford's ghost is the the way he went about assembling a if, if you know efficiency processes there's something that we all live by now and so they still very much have an impact
3: dead white man innovators yeah that's Mm -hmm. a great band name
1: is it (laughs) is it a metal band or what?
3: i'm thinking more because you're in berlin i'm thinking more lots of leather electronic and and keytars okay yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the thing. and maybe we'll have one guy whose job it is just to use an angle grinder on stage and <laughs> maybe i'm just reconstructing rammstein i don't I don't know <laughs> so to explore this you um you went around and spoke with people that that operate on these these fringes when did you when did you first get the idea to do this
1: uh it started up around three years ago and it really started as a joke because i was going to south by southwest which is a Famous kind of techie conference in Austin. And it was a
3: music conference. Also, yeah, <laughs> it used isn't to be that a funny? music conference.
1: <laughs> music is peripheral to capitalists. It, it
3: was, it was <laughs> where people got their band signed. And now and maybe
1: w- it has something to do with film, but no, no, it's the tech conference.
3: It's not even film. It, yeah, it's yeah. like now it's all, it's where Twitter launched. It's where I know,
1: isn't that sad? Yeah,
3: it's wacky, right?
1: Yeah, that's so, the one thing, because I did visit Nashville this summer. And the one thing I liked about it is music still was. The, you know the breadbasket of that. There. Yeah. It's
3: not like LA. LA's like a coal mining town that's shut down for music. <laughs> it's not there anymore. Really, that's really sad. Yeah, it's, it is. It is. It is. So anyway, you're a South by Southwest.
1: Yeah, and I just wanted to do something funny, and so I think there's this attention sort of deficit disorder syndrome, and everyone's tweeting all the time, and everyone's like, "What's next in terms of innovation?" So to be honest, it started as a joke. It started as a way of saying, "Oh, why don't we learn from social media?" Like. By what drug cartels are doing on Twitter or, you know, why don't we learn from Somali pirates about recruitment and retention? And it became this like funny way of thinking about innovation through this lens of deviance really and vice entrepreneurs. And then um, when I started doing the research, it became a bit more serious. And I, I actually, yeah, got to know people's stories a bit more and realized that actually it was a legitimate project and not just an absurdist one.
3: Who did you start with?
1: One of the first um, interviews I had was with all these ex-cons who'd recently gotten out of prison and were part of a program called Defy Ventures. And this program was basically started by a woman who used to work in venture capital and wanted to connect ex-cons with entrepreneurial opportunities. And it was just a great philosophy. She recognized that these folks who had started drug businesses or had led gangs, had a lot of the skills she used to see when she worked in the private equity VC world. And so she really put them through an incubator process and got them launching formal businesses. But through that, I chatted with a lot of guys. And I remember at one point in the room, even um, someone pointed out all the various objects that could be used as weapons, because just in prison, you have a completely different mindset about resource And I think a lot of this innovation can tend to come from scarcity.
3: You mentioned guys. How many of the people that you interviewed were women?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of our research tended to be more focused on male characters. At least these were guys who were really easier to find in some respects. They were more braggy too and sort of they wanted to be found. Um, We definitely spoke to, you know, some Latin queens who were part of um, you know, the sister gang, but...
3: Of the Latin Kings. Of the, the Latin Kings. The North American Hispanic street gang, one of the biggest and most dangerous.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that was one of the conversations that just completely blew my mind as I spoke to um, Antonio Fernandez, who used to lead the Latin Kings in New York. And the Latin Kings, the New York chapter started in the prison system. So the prison system was sort of an incubator for gangs in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And um, when when they got out, just went through one of its bloodiest periods. So there were a lot of internal hits or purgings that t- took place. The FBI was cracking down on it. They were running a huge drug business. And when King Tone really took on his leadership, his sort of CEO position there, he wanted the gang to be a different kind of organization. He thought it could um, become politicized like the Black Panthers or something like that. And so, become
3: more of a movement for the. Uh,
1: Empowering the Hispanic. Yeah. yeah. Empowering Latinos, empowering blacks, connecting them with job opportunities, Mm. um, training, you know, teaching protest and activist tactics. Yeah. And I think that was a challenge. Some accused him just of doing a sort of greenwash marketing type of thing for the gang PR stunt. And um, but, yeah, in, in hearing him talk about it, you definitely see the ways in which he struggled to really turn this big ship, almost like any kind of change management mm-hmm. program that a huge company would undertake.
3: So you said you spoke to some people from the Latin Queens.
1: Yeah, we spoke to a few as well. Um, I think the Latin Queens was always more of a cultural organization. Um, the I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the more, we spoke to a few female hackers. Um, and one of, well, one of the misfits that I spoke to who was more on the artistic side who I really valued and who got me into more of this alter ego work um, was a performance artist, actually. Uh, Marvin Gaye Chetwind, who is a yeah lives um, well, British performance artist who was nominated for the Turner Prize. And she just does all this amazing stuff around identity. And so I think part of the bigger remit of this project became at a point when we realized, actually, let's think about the misfit identity as something more universal, as something that doesn't just apply to these fringe actors, but also can include um, artists and bohemians and people who are trying to change the system from within.
3: That does fascinate me, the the break into the machine and smash it from the inside kind of uh, mentality. Um, how much of that is going on?
1: I think there's a ton. Um, so one of the first statistics I read about this is... Something like a third of all employees are saboteurs within their company, and that just completely blew my mind because these are not just people that are like being lazy at work; these are people that are actually being really counterproductive at work.
3: Yeah, it's not just raiding the stationery cupboard for you know. I mean, I've done that for your kids' school supplies. Getting
1: some. Tape or taking a. It's yeah, just a, that's just a pack of pens. Yeah, Is my kids going to school. I need a pack of pens.
3: Yeah, it's not it's not my that ba- not that it's serious.
1: Yeah, it's more yeah. B- being like saboteurs, and I think you see this with the hacker phenomenon as well. But then there's a whole other tribe of folks that are actually more proactively trying to transform the cultures of the companies and organizations they work with. Um, so that's – I founded something called the League of Entrepreneurs like five years ago that looks at this phenomenon and we're basically a network of people who really believe in this change from within approach and believe in transformation rather than radical revolution.
3: How, is there a tipping point within a company that is is useful? Like you can't just have like one person at an entry-level position yeah. because you can get fired and we can make you be quiet. So I guess you need a bunch of people for them yeah. to make it more economically viable to change than fire 300 people.
1: And that's what we try and do. We try and equip these people with the school with the skills and tools to actually bring this change about. And so sometimes that is building communities or, you know, guerrilla types of communities within your organization, um, you know, having external allies that you can, you know, work with. Uh, even things like how to pitch your ideas internally to really begin to transform that culture, how to stay resilient inside institutions. So there are a whole range of skills that are really focused on this identity that I think hasn't really been recognized. I think so much of the time we focus on these lone ranger type stories of this great entrepreneur um, who's a single story, this sort of hero myth, or you know this radical revolutionary um, who gets into power and then they just become corrupted by that power. And so this question of how we actually change these cultures and focus on some of these more change agents who are a bit stealthier, a bit more camouflaged, and not really after their own ego or brand.
3: So what other things does the the, the League of Entrepreneurs do? It sounds like something that you know, I need a steampunk moustache to be a part of. It sounds pretty cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, we need someone. I was just thinking we don't have anyone with a steampunk moustache, but that would be great,
3: or at least the goggles or something. Some yeah, sort of, some sort of league.
1: We play with um, like bowler hat iconography and yeah. different things. Now like we're this. talking. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's really we started identifying these people, and we did an initial report about it called a the field guide for social entrepreneurs, and that mm-hmm. was focused on twenty individuals. And then we began to scale that community and yeah, brought more and more people who identified with this label. What um, kind of
3: things did you come up with?
1: What kind of people? And no, what kind, what kind
3: of, of things in this this field guide? What kind of things did you come up with?
1: Um, we were really looking at the types of initiatives that people were pioneering. So for example, someone in a huge financial institution that was looking at um, you know divestment opportunities or that was looking at renewables or sustainability or at the time, carbon markets, which have kind of gone amok. Um, you know, someone that we profiled was doing, building out access to energy programs from BP. And I think, you know, the question always was, is this a marginal pet project of the company or is this going to really transform the DNA of the organization? And I think that was a question that a lot of entrepreneurs had to ask themselves. And more and more, the ones that have stuck with that host organization are ones that feel like they are infecting the culture. And others have had to leave because they. I think they think the culture isn't one, is maybe one that's going to go extinct, that some of these organizations might not actually be part of the transition to a new kind of economy.
3: When you say a new kind of economy, what do you mean?
1: Uh, I just think so many of these huge mammoth companies came of age during a very different era. So like the oil and gas companies, the pharmaceutical companies, you had a very different kind of marketplace even you know we were talking earlier about this job for life phenomenon um
3: myth yeah something that grandpa did
1: right i don't even know i guess yeah i guess my yeah yeah i think i have some of those stories but they're hard to find these days and i think what's interesting is so many more people are becoming freelancers becoming hustlers becoming You know, they really have to be elastic between these different opportunities. And the people that I know who are successful are really able to tolerate ambiguity, are able to jump from one thing to the next um, with more ease because they have some of that internal resilience and some of those capacities.
3: How can people build that resilience? Because it's scary as shit to not know where your paycheck's coming from next. You've got a mortgage, you've got kids to feed, and then you want to leave a company because it doesn't vibe with your moral compass that's a tough call. Yeah. So how do you find that resilience?
1: I think it's it's hard. I mean, it's something that I, you know, I jumped out of the system in a, in a way um, maybe four or five years ago to become more of this hyphenated hustler persona. Uh, so I don't know. I think, you know, certainly our educational systems have to change to prepare people for this. There is a huge unschooling movement, which I think is awesome looking. It's basically... Uh, I think that part of it sort of sprung up in California and is quasi libertarian and is so- <laughs> yeah <laughs> all around sort of self directed learning. Um, but I went to a lot of alternative schools growing up. I went to Quaker school. I went to a school that was founded in the '60s, and it was basically just focused on intrinsic motivation. So doing things because you were interested, because you were passionate about them, riding those waves. And I think that prepared me more for this really weird future that we're in that is a bit less about stability and a bit less about, you know, if you're just good at taking the test and not good at navigating ambiguity, I think you're kind of screwed.
3: But there's gotta be something to do about that. I mean, you can't just, I mean, uncertainty is frightening for the majority of people, I would say. So what can you do about
1: that? Well, I think so. Uncertainty is massive right now. This is why the life coaching industry exists, right? right? Like this is, cra- this is a funny phenomenon. Um, and more and more people just have this real, and even life coaches themselves, it's a vocation that they've kind of constructed. Um, so I think there's just a lot of ambiguity in the system. And we're also, we're becoming less dependent on, you know, these huge companies and, you know, tech startups and some of these more emergent disruptive players aren't employing as many people as well. More and more people are becoming freelancers. And so it's just a very different moment. And I think the preparation is really a psychological one. Um, And that's why I think the misfit message is really relevant today, because it's about creating a sense of vocation out of your own oddities, out of your own quirks, out of your own assets and recognizing your gifts and bringing that into your economic vocation and, and your sense of calling rather than just molding to a job description.
3: This is all very well. I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is all very well and good. If you're a writer, you're an artist, you're, you're me. Yep. Uh, you know, I, you know, pitched my job description at Think and they said, okay, we'll pay you. <laughs> and that was it, you know, but I understand that. And I've said it before, I, I was born with a trifecta. I was born white. I was born male. I was born middle class. There's many, many people that don't have that. There's many people who uh, haven't been blessed with the education that I got. And being a fitter and turner or being a, you know, doing a labor job, a laboring job at a construction site or something, is that's, you know, it's an honorable thing I mean at least they get to drive past something and say, look kids I built that I just make air you know <laughs> I don't make anything that's real you can hold in your hands um so you know folks like that is it is it can they find their 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 vocation in in that sort of thing do you think
1: yeah I mean so many of the folks that we interviewed in the informal economy it's all about being a hustler like you have maybe seven different income streams and you diversify your portfolio and you're just finding different ways to bring money, Um, doing odd jobs. You know, even I remember when um, Hurricane Sandy hit New York, a lot of the guys we'd interviewed, the ex-cons were selling, you know, oil out and selling water. And like, they were just, you know, behaving with this entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that's it. I think it's just more and more people will have to learn how to be entrepreneurs and that can be scary and that can be challenging, but it's also, it's the system isn't going to be just handing down opportunities and a whole generation of millennials is also finding this where there aren't just jobs that they can jump into.
3: So it sounds like what you're describing is that the granularity of the economy is, is increasing enormously where it used to be these big block chunky players that the people fit into the those silos are being shattered apart and it has become smaller and smaller and smaller.
1: And to- industries are totally transforming too. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe citizens will start producing some of the basic services that we depend on companies too.
3: Well, this is where, for example, like the maker community really is super exciting. And again, this is something that, I've, it's not my idea, but it's something that I read about in that Jeremy Rifkin book when he talks about um, when energy becomes free or near free, um Which is not far away with solar wind, geothermal, whatever you want to call mm. it um, and the mechanics of of maker machines um the granule the 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 resolution of those machines gets to a point to a certain point um, we don 't need the manufacturing sector anymore that 's it. I can make everything I want in my house and so what do you do then? What do you do when you've got no, when there's no need for a manufacturing sector? Cause I can make entire plates, bowls, um, television remotes, everything in my home.
1: So I think I thought a lot about this and I was at one dinner party in Berlin where we just really debated this ferociously. Um, so my dad grew up as a farmer And I would say I'm not the handiest person. Like I do, I'm a writer. I do things that are a little bit more abstract. So I think you're always going to have some degree of natural talent or specialization that makes some people better at producing some of these. I think also the nature of production dependent on different sectors will make some form of machinery more necessary, or um, even companies or organizations will still need to be there to produce these services. Uh, so I guess the question is, which are the, which are the sectors where people can start producing more uh, and which are the ones that, you know, might need to stay within, you know, the traditional production?
3: So as a let's go back to your economic historian uh, banner, what can we learn about mass mechanization and what that did to um, what that did to labor? in the eighteen and nineteen hundreds, once this mechanization stopped being steam and started being electrified, what can we learn about what happened there to the workforce to what is happening and will within ten years, twenty years will happen with the robotis roboticization? Yeah. Ro- it's robotization. Like yeah. So where everything that could be done by a human cheap more cheaply than by a robot will be done by a robot. So what what can we learn about what happened then? as to what may perhaps happen?
1: Well, I think that moment was kind of a different one because humans were brought under the control of machines. And so if you look at like cinema that describes like Charlie Chaplin in modern times or something, he's sort of being this funny-
3: Fritz Lang's metropolis. Yeah, exactly, Mm -hmm. totally.
1: There is this fear that like technology is encroaching upon us and we're we're becoming more and mechanized. And I think one of the things that Rifkin also talks about- Um, is just time and how time culture is really transformed. Um, And, you know, we were sort of talking about time poverty earlier, but the fact that, you know, time is so standardized and that time is equated to dollar output and productivity and that I have to live my life in accordance with, you know, under mechanical time, basically, that the rhythms of my life are determined by commercial society is pretty interesting and different um, from a historical perspective. So what? So what does automation mean? What does this? I think you know. Certainly, it's going to lead to some degree of substitution. Maybe it'll push human labor more into um, kind. Of- Hold
0: up.
2: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. Kind
1: of highbrow activities like experience economy types of things, or Such maybe as- we'll all there's like a basic income argument too. Um, so this idea that we won't actually need to associate getting paid with doing work, which there's a there's a sort of basic income movement in Europe at the moment where people are just saying you know, let's get rid of, it's kind of libertarian in some ways too. Let's get rid of government. Let's give people, everyone 2,000 euros a month and then they can do whatever they want. Um, And so in a machine universe- Hang on on a
3: second, where does that money come from?
1: Well, the government. So particularly in France, for example, I think there's this recognition that the government is um, eating so much money and the administrative costs are just so high that it's cheaper, in fact, to maybe just give people- uh, 2,000 euros a month for livelihood. And um, part of France's strategy too for dealing with economic growth was to sort of divide one job into two and have people work part-time. And uh, I, I think f- no one is <laughs> suggesting that France should be a model, but I think it's interesting some of those explorations.
3: Because you, you mentioned time poverty. If we suddenly have a society where most, if not all, of manual labor is done by a machine, you've got all these people sitting around with nothing to do.
1: Making podcasts. Well, <laughs>
3: what happens? Because humans, yeah. we need something to do. Maybe we'll all become artists. Well, like, well, maybe, but we're like, we're like a Labrador. A Labrador needs something to do. Dogs need
1: jobs. But we you all, we can exercise. We can make paintings. We can make podcasts. Well, yeah. Then can...
3: does does the pursuit of but dare I say it, happiness and community. Does that become what we're about rather than I'm going to be the best builder of bridges or the best person who does tax returns because that stuff will disappear entirely. You won't have a tax agent. It will be done all automatically. Like rather than that be your identity, your work being your identity, which isn't mine is, you know. Totally. <laughs> I'm grateful that a portion of my work is, you know, is uh is so enjoyable because i identify with it incredibly um so that that's that just kind of fascinates me that's that's a quite a societal shift to go and it from-
1: could go that way that's very i think that's a really nice scenario this sort of well-being scenario in which mm. everyone is knitting or taking up these hobbies and taking you know engaged in the community more and mm. um another scenario we have to is- close the malls
3: a bit <laughs> Yeah, who <laughs> kind of the malls up no. in 24 hours.
1: I I think the mall would cease to exist as a concept it's probably. A, yeah. it would
3: actually. Um What's another scenario?
1: I think another one is much more scary and yeah. anarchistic in which rising inequality leads to com- a lot of conflict and and fight over resource. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah.
3: That that is a, an, an enormous problem in the world. That that Unless, um, and we spoke in the cab on the way, in the Uber on the way over here about um, my time at Disneyland and suddenly seeing middle America before me in all of its Harley Davidson three wolf t-shirt, you know, electric scooter eating a corn dog glory. Um, that amount of, the amount of resources that goes into the lifestyle that lifestyle, my lifestyle, is excessive. It's so excessive. Um, and I, you know, it, 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 it kind of freaks me out a bit how much, how, how many resources I use just living my life compared to how many, how little some people have, some human beings that have every right to exist as much as me have. And like how... How is it possible to, to share that around a bit more, do you think?
1: Yeah. There was one artist who I read about who basically all the trash they produced and waste they produced, they had to carry around with them for a year or something, um, something like this. And that was interesting because then you become really aware. Yeah. And I think there's this trend right now in minimalist kind of lifestyle where people are pursuing this and realizing that things don't buy happiness contrary to our madman days of, Yeah.
3: Things most definitely do not buy happiness. Right. Yet yet we measure our country's success on the sale of things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's really screwed up. Yeah. Kind of weird. But I I think that's challenging because that's like a faith-based system. So we have to jump to a different faith system. And it's unclear what that system will be, if it'll be maybe around well-being or what some of these new indicators Mm. people are working on.
3: Because I guess history has proven that when inequality gets to a certain point, well, good luck, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the most famous would be in what happened in France with the the let them eat cake moment.
1: Yeah, you have tons of these moments. And I I really like apocalypse moments too. Like I'm very interested in why people suddenly think the world is going to end and a lot of people sort of willing that. And I think you often see that too. Um, maybe in moments where there's more drought or where there's, you know, food scarcity or these types of things. And a lot of people in the U.S., there's a huge prepper community that's really believing we're done for. And let's start preparing for, you know, to live off the grid, to live as hermits, to live this self-reliant lifestyle.
3: That is the sound of, I'm guessing, ice falling out of the sky.
1: (laughs) It's the end of the world. It's no, happening. <laughs> just
3: this is winter in the Netherlands. Yeah, no, no, that's pretty much it. the The prepper thing is a bit odd. I do. I get it. I totally get it. Because if you feel that you are out of control, and that your society is doing things that you aren't happy with, if you are predicting a direction where things are going, and this being uncertain, this being with uncertainty, is so much. Well, of course, you want to you start with buying an extra tube of toothpaste and next thing you know, you've got a thousand square foot bunker with a generator and food supplies for three years.
1: I think it is exactly what you say. It's a control problem and it's a problem of agency. Like people don't feel like they have control over the economy anymore. And so it's this way of actually hearkening back to a simpler time where you, you know, filtered your own water and just did so many more things yourself.
3: I guess it gives us something to do. Yeah. But it's an enormous investment. Those those things look expensive.
1: Right. I mean, I'm going to start befriending them on Twitter just to…
3: <laughs> oh, really? Have I, you talked to any?
1: I've communicated a little bit. Um, some, because I did the Samish character and some thought that that was interesting from, you know, this Luddite back to the earth kind of thing. Yeah. But then they realized it was a little satirical and so they didn't like me as much anymore. Right. Um, but, yeah, there's a woman, for example, who… Has this whole blog about how to look pretty after the apocalypse? Um, so how you forage for sort of beauty supplies in the wilderness and stuff,
3: assuming the wilderness exists as it does today right. after the apocalypse.
1: Yeah, exactly. Of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's the fun of it. It's kind of people are just using their imagination.
3: Yeah, yeah, I guess you. Um, you keep you keep mentioning the the, the people you talk to, but. I'm still a little, just kind of a bit stuck on how how many women you encountered. It doesn't seem like there was many.
1: There weren't too many women. And we. D- I talked about, I think that just the nature of some of the ways we went about our research were to find, you know, we would drop into a country, India, for example, and we would just ask around. Um, you know, sometimes we would try and buy drugs somewhere just to get a connection to someone. And I think some of the more um, sort of not pompous, but just sort of people that would be attention seeking or that would have that position of authority were, you know, men. And I think a lot of the women operated more in the shadows and were even harder to find, and didn't necessarily have leadership positions. A lot of these black market economies, I think, are, you know, controlled in a patriarchal way that's pretty similar to a lot of standard industry.
3: Right, and um, I wonder what I wonder why that is. Is it that because we saw um at uh, at work today, we uh, we did a fantastic exercise. It was super fun. Um, Alexa ran an exercise where she asked uh, the participants of the class to break into groups of three to four and uh, form a cult and give the cult uh, an initiation ceremony, a deity, a um, uh, a value system, um, what they stood for. And one of the ones we saw was, uh, we're going to bring bring peace to the world by making us all 70% women. And I found that quite... I, I got to say, I agree. <laughs> all Pretty much all wars are started by men.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think there's something in the air, definitely, about how we bring more feminine energy into the work that we do mm. and into the people that we are. And I think a lot of, you know, certainly in a New Age discourse, there's a lot of discussion by men, too, about how to integrate more of their feminine side. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I think a lot of... Males, too, of this generation, this millennial generation, had a lot of, you know, had strong mothers and had a lot of female influence that made them, you know, all my brothers are very sensitive and empathetic and not remotely alpha in any way. I think that's a really good thing.
3: How many brothers have you got? I have three. And which number are you?
1: I'm the eldest. Oh, right. Yeah.
3: So it was you and then three boys? Yeah. And that's it? Yeah. Boy. That's a lot of people, and I'm one of four as well. I'm two of four.
1: What? You're two four? Oh, okay. I'm yeah, two yeah. of
3: four boys. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, you um, you mentioned. You, well, since we're talking about family, I think it'd be fun to talk about what your what your mum did for a living because <laughs> <laughs> I've never spoken to anyone whose mum did that for a job.
1: Yeah, she researched alien abduction. That's awesome. It was amazing. It was kind of scary, but also,
3: yeah. So she would talk to people who claimed to have been abducted by aliens.
1: Yeah. So she went around the world interviewing folks who had these experiences. And she did this with Dr. John Mack, who um, passed away but was a psychiatrist at Harvard. And they would go off together and do have these research trips and go to Brazil and Australia and Zimbabwe, and just talk to folks who had these crazy experiences, and I would sometimes see. You know, I was little; I was sort of between the ages of seven to fourteen when all this was going on. Um, so would see videos, would see, yeah, drawings that people had done, would hear testimonies, and it was just always in the background a little bit. Um,
3: That and did she, you know, ever explain how, how old were you when she said, "This is what mom does for a living."
1: She, my mom is someone who just lives her life very openly. And so there's never this kind of moment where like, oh, let me get the kids together to talk to them in this parental way about what's going on. We were always just privy to everything that was Mm -hmm. going on. Yeah.
3: I wonder if it's, did they have, did they have similar experiences They had similar stories?
1: This was the thing. So, yeah, I mean, this guy was a psychiatrist and he couldn't, he didn't. What amazed him was that all the reports, all these stories were so similar mm. and they didn't test for any mental illnesses. So this was the only abnormality of experience that they showed really. And so his conclusion was actually, maybe this is not about them. They're not crazy. Maybe this maybe this happened. And maybe maybe we don't even have the ways to talk about it. Maybe there's some a limitation of our consciousness in explaining this phenomenon rather than doubting these people's testimony.
3: Was the work published?
1: Yeah. There's a book called Abduction.
3: I'm totally getting that. Check,
1: check it out. Yeah. <laughs> and someone's working on a documentary now too, actually. The, you
3: know. the idea that this experience is similar is 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 what fascinates me. There was a, a, what book am I reading at the moment? Patton Oswalt, the comedian Patton Oswalt. Um, talking about Van Gogh's uh, final, like all of Van Gogh's greatest work uh, was done in the last year of his life. He mm-hmm. kind of went, his bonkers went extra bonkers, and all his paintings came out at this point. And um,
1: that's when he was poisoned by his paints or something. I yeah. know some, uh, he He's had, like, it. he was schizophrenic. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And they, he talks about Patton Oswald he's a very smart man and a standout comic, Uh, he talks about that the drawings of people with schizophrenia have really, really similar, no matter where they are in the world, they have really similar um, aspects. Like, for example, uh, light bulbs have squiggly cartoon lines coming out of them as if this energy, like they can perceive this energy coming at their brains and so that's the only way they know how to draw it and that in, in Van Gogh's art. The, the, indeed, it's exactly the same phenomena and that the way the brain, uh, the brain sees the world when it's in these uh, illnesses um, is so similar around the world. I find that, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. Like yeah. um, when you see uh, – it's, it's terribly sad when you see uh, homeless guys on the street and they just have just heaps of plastic bags. Just thousands of thousands of plastic bags. And I've seen that in Prague, I've seen that in Sydney, I've seen that in Brisbane, I've seen that in LA, I've seen it in New York. It's like, when did someone get on the phone and say, hey, everybody, it's plastic bag collection time? Yeah. Like, isn't that it's fun, they're fascinating.
1: And what is I yeah, I mean, I think this idea too that was born out from this like economic history moment where we had to become more rational. Mm-hmm. And so I think that led to fallout at a neurological level, I mean, this, I have no, I'm not a scientist, but at some, at some, in some capacity, we have all these, you know, centuries of evolution where we were magical thinkers, where we had all these myths and ways of existing in the world and types of consciousness that, you know, were just completely different from the rational mindset that we all have to walk around in. And it, so it seems pretty intuitive that then, you know, People wouldn't be able to conform to this.
3: And like
1: OCD, for example, could have been an evolutionary advantage in a different time period. Or, you know, some of these things that we treat quite clinically have a sort of origin because they were forms of consciousness that allowed us to survive.
3: If it wasn't an advantage and it is genetic, what's it still doing? (laughs) <laughs> you know what's it still doing in us? You know that uh, that's just the plain fact. Before we invented all kinds of drugs that kept us alive, if if there was something that wasn't, you know, good, we we would die. And so things like that's interesting. I'm gonna you know, maybe there's a reason why that trait has existed in us. I, I talk about this all the time, but my my doctor down in, in Sydney, um, he talks about Olympians. He said if you don't if you think that an Olympian who Like a weightlifter, for example, who does the same eight to ten second routine thousands and thousands of times for one moment four years from now doesn't have a little bit of OCD? You're kidding yourself. They have to, otherwise everyone else will get bored. They have to. It's just a.
1: I mean, doing sports too. I think that. I mean, I used to do yeah a lot of competitive sports growing up, and it you just. Yeah, you do develop a little bit of superstitious belief in how you do different things. Oh, just Definitely.
3: That it's not done until I do this this many times. Yeah. yeah, I have to do it this many times, otherwise I can't go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And think about bankers, like they have this attitude too around money. It's like a different pathology, but very similar.
3: Well, they won't if they get the um, basic income
1: like, right. <laughs> like No one will be a sociopath anymore. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of funky. So what's the, um? How, how do you see, what will we see more and more of in the mainstream with this kind of misfit um, economics or the misfit economy skills coming into the culture? What do you think we'll
1: see more of? I think we see less of a monolithic economy and we see an economy that's able to absorb more and more of people's individuality mm-hmm. um that's kind of the scenario, and that's a lot of what I'm trying to build is create these spaces where misfits can thrive, where entrepreneurs can change the cultures around them, where people who've been marginalized can actually have more mainstream access to some of those channels mm-hmm. to do what they're trying to do um so yeah, I hope you know that we that we outgrow command and control systems and rigid hierarchies that we govern ourselves in more egalitarian kinds of ways. Um. yeah.
3: So for folks who aren't too familiar, what, what could you explain a command and control system?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's basically this factory kind of discipline, um, this Taylorist, Fordist kind of, uh, you know, living in this assembly line, basically uh, living in a hierarchy. Most, you know, if you go and work at Exxon, that's a pretty command and control system. You're reporting to someone who is above you and And a lot of the economy has been structured that way versus, um, yeah, you know, even old school pirate ships were governed more egalitarianly than a lot of businesses. So that's that's interesting. Like, I think in a lot of these misfit economies, you see more radical experiments in alternative kinds of governance and, you know, participatory democracies and, you know, things like the Occupy movement where you had uh, decentralized decision making and things like this.
3: Do you see the command and control um, system existing outside of a workplace, like in just everyone's day-to-day life?
1: Well, Adam Curtis has this awesome documentary called The Century of the Self, and he basically says we've internalized a spectator in all of our heads. So even when we're not at work, that system is still in our head, controlling us and disciplining us. Um, so it 's a wonderful movie. You can watch it on youtube, but i think I think it 's interesting to think about how economic logics spill over into our personal lives. like I met someone in New York, for example, who um, was on all these dating sites and she was putting them into spreadsheets, and each person she was like evaluating according to criteria and she 'd give them numbers and that is literally your romantic life following the mechanics of commercial life you know each person is kind of a product who you're evaluating and you are a consumer who's trying to find the best possible product
3: did she find someone
1: she did <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it works for some i don't know what
3: was his number
1: <laughs> he, he had nine or ten yeah
3: well i guess look behind <laughs> the scenes on those dating sites there's algorithms that are just going crazy though there's there's algorithms work and then people get married Yeah. It happens all the time. It does. So is there some part of this command and control thing that serves us?
1: Um, I think, I mean, algorithms are a bit different. This is sort of nudging and it's taking in preferences into Mm. account. It doesn't work for me. I mean, I think I'm much more part of like a romantic movement. Uh, but mm. I definitely have friends who are very, who think, you know, this is the way forward. Right.
3: Well, it's funny you, you mentioned that. I've, I've met someone who, uh, when she meets somebody at a dinner party, for example, their name goes into a spreadsheet. And <laughs> like it populates, no shit, it populates a calendar invite for a month from then or two weeks from then to, to text and call and, and see what's up and, you know, and follow that relationship up. And yeah, she's you know I feel like all right, this person's my friend she she's a machine. has she yeah. has uh systemized her friendship life, and um i've actually at, at her house she has a list of people on the wall of people to invite out or people to hang with people to hang with that's what it says, and like she adds people to the list new people she meets, and you know.
1: And maybe we all do that at a human level. Sometimes they're like, oh, I really should hang out with this person. I haven't seen them in a while. But I think the serendipity is nice too. It's nice to bump into someone or to have people for different phases of life. And yeah, I don't know. if I guess what's her end? Is she a politician or like what is no, no, she no. She's, trying to achieve? She's
3: really lovely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel uh, very nurtured and I feel that, if she asked me anything, I'd do it. So it feels real to me.
1: I don't know if I could be friends with someone who managed me in a spreadsheet.
3: She's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> She's super cool. She's really interesting. And when you, when I don't want to say too much more about her because I don't want to out her. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you off air, but she is super cool. And you, you might, it, it's, I think it's part of the eccentricity that makes her who she is, I think, which is.
1: Uh, yeah, if that feels authentic. And I think yeah. it's cute too. But if that's like a mainstream practice, it becomes different. Maybe that's just something quirky about her that also yeah. makes her who she is. So
3: there's a there's a baby at, uh, at uh, school at the moment. One of the participants has a yeah. very, very fresh child. Well, I think it's only a couple of weeks old. <laughs> fresh yeah. yeah i think it's honestly it's maybe 2 months 3 months when that kid's 21 what kind of uh what kind of world do you think he's got what what kind of what what will his uh school look like what do you think his uh let's just really throw it out there what will his work look like
1: he might not even go to school yeah yeah he might be part of a community of people who learn And he might have mentors in this community that he can be connected to when he wants to learn something. Um, Yeah, he might have more vocational training earlier on. So, like, this focus on craftsmanship...
3: it sounds like you're describing a pre-industrial age community.
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, this is the good scenario. There could be some, you know, it could go the other way too. Let's keep
3: on the good side. Yeah, I
1: liked it better because I met him, and he's really sweet, and I want this to exist. for yeah. him. yeah.
3: So what else will what else will his uh, what will his jobs look like? What will his, what we do for money?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he could do something. Depends how handy he is, but he could do. I think he'll become. You know, communities will be more locally resilient, so he could um really be part of you know actually you know making things in the world um you know tending to his own garden um doing his own sort of diy solar types of things harvesting his own energy uh he could be an artist because everyone will have more time to be an artist um i mean this is very romantic scenario what else could he be i don't know what do you what do you think he could be
3: um, ooh, I, I think I would like to see that kid live in a world where and honestly when I see kids now that I'm older, I look at them and I'm like, you know, the world I live in today at 40 somewhat resembles the world I was born into but its values, its mechanisms are so vastly different. That will probably be 10 times, 20 times when this kid's 21. I would like to think that, yes, indeed, his career, as we call it, his purpose will be happiness for himself and his community, whether that be through service of his community um, or some other way that, Indeed, that we come full circle back to this space of we function best when we're in a um, a group somewhat around, what was it, Dunbar's number, 150,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, uh, which is the amount, uh, an anthropologist found it, is apparently the amount of people that you can uh, legitimately have a true connection with. Once it gets above that, people just kind of become names and faces. They don't become people you have empathy for. Um, and that, uh Or he will have figured out a way to 10 times that community number and 150 people in person, but maybe 1500 virtually could be real interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, our capacities too could entirely change as well. Yeah. I think, I mean, if sometimes I think just psychologically we're developing so many skills that we didn't have in previous generations. mm. And emotionally, when I look at younger kids, I'm just blown away by how emotionally intelligent they are. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's something that I didn't see as much present in even my generation, or my parents' generation, which seems, you know, really more primitive in that way.
3: Yeah. Do you feel good about uh, about the future?
1: I do, yeah. I tend to, yeah. But I think this is just a bias of my personality. And this is why I think all futurists are just kind of bullshitting, because it's just based on a projection of their own personality biases yeah
3: but futurists tend to be the one that call the shots and then other people tend to fill in the blanks
1: maybe yeah they sort of narrate the opportunities for the future Mm. but they also have a lot less control than they think they do i guess (laughs) like things just happen you know i remember there were all these revolutionaries there's some quote. You know, I was waiting for the revolution and when it happened, it was the wrong one. I think futurists can sort of prepare and prepare for this moment that never really happens.
3: Is the moment happening right now? That's the question.
1: Yeah.
3: Probably is. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for having a chat with me.
1: Yeah, you're good at this. This is nice and easy.
3: <laughs> I'd like to think so. Yeah. I like, I enjoy it very much. And um, I really enjoy the the people that listen, the people that uh, right in and uh you know digital independent broadcasting it's it's fantastic. I love that I have a job for a network I have a job for a network down in australia um, but I also love the fact that that network won't look like it looks in five years or ten years from now, and that network will probably be um, or or networks will again, come down to this granularity of like what's the, the the main content we can create and how can we best market it? People will find it on their phone, on their TV, on their laptop, on their tablet, on whatever curved projectional holographic device we figure out how to make at the next CES next year. Um, but as long as the content's great, people will f- figure it out. Um, like I'm watching uh, Fargo right now on Netflix. I missed it when it came out on, on TV, on FX in the States. It's bloody amazing. But you know, I'm just I'm finding this content somehow. I don't care how the net how the network I don't I don't you know, I don't care that it was on FX. I just care that it's great, great content. And I'm still talking about it. I'm still loyal to it. I'm more loyal to the content than I am to the network, which I think is definitely the future for my my industry. And that's where the the best thing that I can do when I'm doing this is to be authentic, as authentic as possible. For if I have a conversation with you from um, like, we had a similar conversation earlier today at at work. I was beholden to those people in that room and I was very aware of their needs from our conversation. I get to be really selfish with you in this conversation and speak to you authentically from my point of view and we have the time and space to, to discuss from there. And so I feel that if I was to do anything else on this show, that would be a disservice to the people that have been with me the whole time and listened to me. And and plus, it's easy if you're just authentic, man. You don't have to put up a front. But
1: that's it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the future that we're talking about. Totally. It's bringing this authenticity to play. And I think for things like this, it's all that these big publishers have is distribution. All that these networks have is distribution, really. And so I think you'll see really interesting ways. There's a guild, for example, that's being created out in Silicon Valley um, of big time writers who are all saying, let's go at this together. Let's create a guild system where the 10 most popular writers we have built in audiences, let's like game, you know, disrupts the publishing industry. And I think that can start happening. And so even if you find, you know, 10 people who have a similar sort of can build audience with you, and you can share audiences. That's you've built power against this old system.
3: It's it's really interesting, and I, I think I think more and more. Uh, not that I'm sensationalist about what I uh, disclose on this show, but I feel the more authentic I am, the better this show is, and the better interactions I have with people. And the greatest compliment I ever get is When people meet me after they've seen me on television or they've seen me doing the show, that oh, I thought you'd be different. I'm
1: like, no, this is yeah. I mean, do you feel like you have to have these two brands that like one is sort of your self, and then you have this other public persona that I did
3: for a while? Yeah, I did for a while. This
1: schizophrenic type
3: when I was it. doing, oh, not, not not schizophrenic, but um, a little like your Amish futurist. So, old me, this you'll love this. Um, We talked about how I changed my name before we started recording. Old me was blonde, bleach blonde hair. and
1: Spray tan. (laughs) No, 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 not
3: spray tan, proper tan because I was surfing a lot at the time, but uh, I was Andrew G, just one letter. It was the early, it was. It's like a
1: boy band. Totally. Yeah. It was
3: 1998. Oh, yeah, sync was
1: was just. It was an FM
3: radio nickname.
1: Yeah.
3: It was an FM radio nickname that followed me into television. And when I stepped on camera, you better believe I, I stepped into this persona.
1: Thank God I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, and you even sigh like, oh, it's exhausting. It was. And I feel that. Like when I have to be a talking head on stage, I much prefer conversation because when you're just this talking head, you have to fulfill
0: yeah.
1: all these weird needs that, you know, this construct. yeah. Um,
3: it's so it's so much like I still when I'm when I'm on TV like I still there's a job I'm there to do I'm there to present a show and and there will be an element that is uh, a little enhanced but it's no more enhanced than if you stood up at a dinner party versus if you said and gave
1: a toast or dressed nicely than or, if you
3: said something yeah. to the person at the seat next to you it's a similar um, distance between one and the other whereas before it it literally was like I would go home and not leave my house. All right. And then I'll, you know, I'm on national television running around and whatever. Um,
1: I think that's healthy. I think having this range of motion where you can tap into mm-hmm. some of these different things and know the context when a certain personality is more appropriate. But
3: I'm also sober now.
1: Oh, <laughs> I wasn't sober back okay. then. <laughs>
3: Life was very different. <laughs> Life was very, very different back then. I was. Crikey, I'm glad it's over. Um, That's
1: a, that sounds like a good, interesting podcast.
3: Uh,
1: no? Do you? Yeah.
3: yeah, that one's coming. I talked about it a bit on the show before. I've talked a little about it.
1: I just love this idea of how people remake themselves. Yeah. People that have, yeah, just had these total 180s mm. or stepped into these new identities. Or I just think those stories are so interesting.
3: In my experience? it has not so much been about remake myself as in take off all of the things that I piled upon myself to reveal the person closer to the person that I actually am. That's how I would describe
1: it. I think that's really well said. And I would say that's how I felt like in moving to Berlin, suddenly it was just about deprogramming myself and taking off these layers that I'd learned to wear to be successful or to be, yeah, achievement-oriented or, you know, and I think that's what it's about.
3: Oh, look, I'll be peeling away stuff until the day I die. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not carrying around the multitude. I'm not like your mate carrying around his trash for a year or her Mm -hmm. trash for a year, um, which essentially was what it was. I was dragging this stinking refuse around with me and and, uh, once you know, slowly, painfully, you you pick it off and then uh, you heal up and then, you know, oh, wow, I'm still okay. All right, let's grab the next bit. And you kind of go from there. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's the danger too with this internet dating or these things is people are just sometimes walking around with all that trash <laughs> piled up. <God>. And <sighs> I think I used when I was younger, I used to be so open to just to people and to, you know, having conversations, meeting everyone, da da da. And then I realized, wait a minute, people have this deep shit going on under the surface. You have to be careful of what you get polluted by, what you get exposed to a bit, yeah.
3: I've heard it, yeah. <laughs> I've heard it. It's a, that's when people come out with the conspiracy theories. Yeah. That's when people come out and go, well, it was the Jews. <laughs> You're like, wait, hold on a second yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. Wait up there, buddy. hold your horses. I don't know. My dad told me it's true. I'm like, wait, hold, fucking wait. You're not my friend anymore. This is terrible. Yeah, it's frightening. It's frightening. Um, That was an interesting diversion. We were almost wrapping it up and then we were wrapping it up and we, well, good. Exactly. I'm glad. All right. So um, there's an Indian restaurant down the street. Do you get yeah. good Indian in Berlin?
1: Uh, no, bad Indian.
3: Well, we're a little closer to the UK here, so yeah. we might find better Indian.
1: Yeah, let's do that. Um,
3: but I'm going to take your photo.
1: Okay. Okay? With your All right. Polaroid?
3: Yeah, with my, with my Polaroid 110A. I went to the factory. I went to the Impossible factory yesterday.
1: I know. You were seven. Dude, really it was cool. the greatest.
3: Anyway, I'll stop this and I'll take <laughs> your photo. Thank you.
1: Beautiful. Thanks.
3: And that was Alexa Clay. She's on twit- She's on Twitter at Alexa Clay you can explore her work as well at misfiteconomy.com. Very very interesting stuff very interesting stuff. So uh, I'd love to know your thoughts so email me whatever you reckon. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for subscribing by the time you'll hear this I' am a year older it will have been my birthday so thank you for being a part of my life because making this show each and every week is one of the true joys that I have. So thank you so much. Until we speak next, be kind, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things.